The words that I'd like to draw your attention to this afternoon are found once again in the book of First Peter. We'll go back earlier in that epistle and read verses through ten of chapter three through nine of chapter one and then verse thirteen. First Peter chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, we need grace. We need grace to resist temptation. We need grace to even see our sin and folly. Lord, we need grace to endure. For the road, as you know, of following you is not an easy one. It is not broad. It is not comfortable. It is not easy. It is hard. And you know, you in fact destined us for this. You destined the church to be an afflicted church. And yet a church that through her afflictions would prove herself glorious because she was birthed in You. Lord, the church and every believer in her is a product of the work of regeneration, the power of Your Holy Spirit changing souls that were once dead in transgressions and sins to be alive in You. And You've given us Your divine nature. And You've given us every reason to rejoice despite living in a, in a sinful flesh and living in a fallen world that is hostile to everything we believe and desire. Give us grace now to understand Your Word and to prepare us for what You've called us to. And I pray that we would leave, every single soul here would leave rejoicing truly rejoicing in the fixed hope 
that You have secured for us in Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this this uh, topic uh, for today has astonishing relevance uh, for our current time. Uh, it will make the difference, I believe, between you having a life defined by cowardice and fear or joy and confidence. At no other point in my lifetime has the future looked bleaker for Christians. And I, and I also think at no other time are there more mirages that are in front of us for which we might be duped into putting our hope in. I mean, even just in, our, in, our, in this week, there are many things we could put hope in. We, do, we just found out that you know, some things are, are transitory, like uh, the Pac-12 football season starting up. How easy it is for even uh, as Americans for us to put hope in that, a new season. We also heard that some schools might be opening up. So those who are, have been burdened with the, the extra um, responsibilities of trying to work at home with, while watching kids, there's hope that relief will be lifted. There's obviously an election happening in a couple of days. And how easy it is for us to hope that there could be change that will result, result in things being better for us individually or for the church. There's also the holiday season, which a lot of people look forward to. Some people actually don't look forward to it, but many of us look forward to Christmas and Thanksgiving and time to be with family and, and to celebrate traditions. There are many, many different things that we are tempted to put our hope in and often do put our hope in. But even if all of our hopes go the way we want to, the reality is they're only going to bring probably minimal blessing to our life. But the chances are they'll probably go worse than we expect. And we're going to be tempted to even greater dejection. This week I listened to a very sobering interview. Uh, Al Mohler hosted in his Thinking in Public podcast. It was an interview with Rob Dreher who just came out with a new book. And it was one of the most illuminating conversations <clears throat> I've heard in years. And, and really, the, the, in summary of the conversation was, what is happening in our culture before our very eyes is very, very similar to what happened in uh, the, the so previously Soviet and communist countries in the East. The difference being that what is happening for us is not being forced upon us by a totalitarian dictatorship, but it's something we're actually personally engaging in, embracing, being coerced through social pressure, fueled by big tech companies, the media, and centers of higher learning. And this is the upshot of it. The reality is the next decade is probably going to be very difficult to be a Christian. No matter what happens in the, in the upcoming election. And I don't think it'll be long before you have to choose whether to ditch your ambitions 
your reputations, your financial stability for faithfulness to biblical teaching. If you compromise, you'll sell out like Judas and join the throng of on the broad road to destruction. And you will compromise unless your hope is firmly fixed in a future resurrection. I can't say that with enough earnestness without pounding the pulpit. You will compromise unless your hope is firmly fixed on the future resurrection and the return of Christ. The difference between a life of cowardice and compromise and one of courage and confidence is where your hope is fixed. And I think one of the most obvious evidences of being born again is having our hope fixed in Christ's return when all of the promises of Scripture that have been given to us will be realized. And I want you to see this in the text before us. That is not the best. It says outline. And that's the outline. I want you to see that that, that in verses 3 through 5 it shows that hope is the evidence of regeneration and that the proof of our hope is that, it, that it's evidence in trials. The fact that our hope is real, that our regeneration is real, that our faith is real, is proven in the trials that the Lord brings us through. And then in, verses thir- in verse 13, Peter tells us how then we can grow in hope. If, if, if we need to fix our hope in the future, how can we do better at fixing our hope and, and learn to not so quickly invest our hope in the things of this life. So let's look first at hope being evidence of our regeneration. There are a number of New Testament texts that connect uh, regeneration and hope. Uh, they're listed at the, at the bottom of the screen there. 1 John 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 8, Titus 2, in light of Titus 3, 5, 1 Peter 4, 13. But... 1 Peter chapter 1 is the most obvious. It's incredibly obvious. And so that's where I want to focus our attention today. Where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice that in verse 3, Peter explicitly states that Christians are regenerated to a living hope. As you know, the, the word hope in Greek doesn't refer to just a, a whimsical wish, but it's a certain expectation. You hope in that which you have confidence in. So it's, there's, a, there's a, a greater sense of certainty rather than uh, wishfulness. Moreover, notice that it's described as a living hope. And it's described as a living hope to contrast it with all the vain and empty and dead hopes of this life, the things that are transitory, that really aren't things that we can have much confidence in. Because of the the weakness of our flesh, we don't know if we're even going to be around tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to be around for the next hour. 
We could have an aneurysm and die here. But this hope is a living hope. The hope we have in Christ is certain. And in fact, that's why Paul in his teachings on, on the future resurrection, which we read in 1 Corinthians 15, that's why he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If there isn't a greater hope than the transitory hopes of this life, if there's not a certain hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable of all people for what we have chosen to endure and follow. And I also want you to notice that what Peter says here is that we're born again unto a living hope. That that particle too indicates there's the purpose, the result. That is regeneration's purpose. The result of regeneration is this living hope. And actually Peter says regeneration results in two things. Living hope and an inheritance. Verse 4. And the grammar actually suggests that these aren't actually talking about two different things, but that the inheritance is further definition of the living hope. So they're actually referring to the same thing. But what exactly are they referring to? Is it, is it referring to going to heaven? To, to be able to see Christ face to face? To being done with sin? Receiving our reward for our faithfulness? Most likely, Peter's primarily referring to receiving our resurrected bodies. It probably entails all those things, but I think primarily he's speaking to our future resurrection. And there's a number of reasons for that. And first is seeing the connection with Christ's return. We know that we're going to receive our resurrected bodies when Christ returns. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. And notice, too, that even the language that Paul uses here is very similar to the language that he uses in first sorry that peter uses is similar to the language that paul uses in his description of the resurrection and i think also if peter were just speaking of longing to go to heaven to be with christ that actually wouldn't make any sense because we don't have to wait for christ's return to be with christ he's not talking about just longing to be with christ but like Paul said, he doesn't want to be unclothed, but further clothed. His longing is to be, have his salvation complete when he's resurrected. So he's not just speaking about going to heaven, but actually being with Christ with his return, which is when we get the resurrected bodies. Secondly, there's also the connection of Christ's resurrection and regeneration made in verse 3. So Christ's resurrection and our regeneration, they're tied together. Again, that's why Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirteen. Another indicator that Peter's referring to our resurrected bodies is, notice in verse 3, he describes our salvation as being completed in verse 5. So, sorry, the hope that he's referring to in verse 3 is the final completion of our salvation in verse 5. That wasn't clear in how I said it. So our salvation, which began with regeneration, in other words, is going to be completed when we finally receive a resurrected body. In a sense, we're half-baked. 
because we still struggle with sin. On that day, we won't struggle with sin anymore. We still have to do what, what, what uh, theologians call be sanctified. We're positionally sanctified in Christ. We've been made holy, but we need to continue growing in Christ-likeness. We need to continue to pursue Christ-likeness until it's done. Well, it's not going to be done until we get our resurrected bodies. And another reason is that in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, the future, whenever uh, people are exhorted to hope in the future, the focus is not so much on heaven as much as it is the resurrection. In fact, if you look up heaven in a concordance, you'll notice that almost all the references are just heaven as a place, not something to look forward to in the future. That doesn't mean we shouldn't look forward to it. It's just that's not how the term is treated in the New Testament. The focus of, of our future hope is almost entirely on the resurrection. Getting our new bodies, our glorified bodies. So, why is this such a big deal to the apostles? Why is it that Peter says, fix your hope completely on this moment? Why is it that this is the first thing that he talks about out of the gate in verse 3 of this epistle? Why is it that, he, that this is such a big deal to him. Well, think about it. When, we retur- when Christ returns and we get our resurrected bodies, all of the pains that we experience in this life will be done. There will be no more loss, no more death, no more waiting for any promise to be fulfilled. No more ending of relationships. No more discouragement over sin. We will finally finally, finally be satisfied. And not just in a spiritual sense, but physically satisfied. In a glorified body. And and we will be able to see God in the flesh, as Job says in Job 19. And with our eyes, we will be able to behold our Creator and not be consumed. And, and not be afraid, not be ashamed, but be holy even as He is holy. So it begs this question, though, how do we know if we have truly been born again so that we can hope in that? How do we know that we ourselves are in possession of such a hope? Well, that's where Peter turns to in verses six through nine. You can know because your faith will be tested. If your faith is real, if you truly have been born again. And have living hope. It'll be tested. And the test will prove its reality. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. Even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Notice in what Peter says here, just on a surface observation, that he is far more concerned that people have confidence that they're born again than that they suffer. 
And Peter's congregants, the people he's writing to, suffered tremendously and will, and will suffer greatly, as we know from church history. But he's far more concerned, not just that, that the suffering that they're experiencing is relieved, but they, they have certainty that one day it will be done. Because if they don't have certainty that one day it will be done, it won't be done. It will actually only increase infinitely more. And so his concern is, value these tests. Don't, don't shirk the test. Don't despise. And that means it count as worthless, as valueless. But treasure them. In fact, don't just treasure them, but rejoice in these trials for what they prove. And if they prove that you're not a believer, then repent and believe and trust in Christ. Leave off the old life and turn to Him. Christians rejoice in trials because they prove, the trials is, that is, they prove that we really do have a future hope. That our, that our, that our hope and our faith and, and the reality of our regeneration, they're real. We didn't just imagine it. But we really have been transformed by the miraculous grace of God. And notice that the trials that, that test our faith, they're various. They can range from severe persecution to getting a cold. To, to sleepless nights to an annoying neighbor. From misery at work to living with a cantankerous spouse. A trial could be having to change a diaper in the middle of the night. We're in the middle of the day for that fact. Or, or it could also be just be getting your car stolen. The trials that we face are all of the annoyances, are all the challenges, all the difficulties that test, are you going to live for yourself or are you going to live for Christ? And, the, and, and truth be told, we don't always respond the way we want, but that in and of itself is a trial. Do you repent? Do you grieve your failures? And do you, do you, are you striving to improve? Are you striving to want to honor Christ? Everybody faces trials, but what's unique about Christians is how they respond to them. I already mentioned repentance, but what Peter actually focuses on are two other things. They rejoice and they grieve. First, he says they rejoice in verse 6. You greatly rejoice. It's a superlative. And then verse 8, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That, that word inexpressible um, it means that it, it's very real, but it's hard to put into words. Much like if you were to ask a mother to, to explain how much they love their children. Well, it's real. They do. But it's really hard to put into words because it transcends words. This joy transcends the ability to describe. And it's also full of glory. Literally, actually, what it says, it's uh, uh, the joy is glorified. It's glorified joy. And what it's speaking to is the fact that God has infused that person with joy. God has placed that joy in a person's heart. Well, when did that happen? When they were born again. It's, it's part of the package of being born again to rejoice in even trials. Because God has given us that joy. 
Well, maybe you say, well, that's honestly, that's not how I respond to trials is by rejoicing. Does that mean that I'm not born again? Well, maybe. But I think probably more likely it's the reality that the reason you're not rejoicing is because your hope isn't in where your hope is not where it should be. You've you're not rejoicing because you've forgotten what you're called to and you've forgotten even the purpose of trials. It's easy for us to foolishly set our hope on mirages, a new home, a new job, a new season, um, political change. And when we do so, we rob ourselves of that God-infused joy that's already within us. And that's the point. We don't have to go out looking for this. It's there. The question is, are we tapping into it? If we're not tapping into it, it's because we're choosing not to. And we're choosing not to because we really don't want to put our hope there. Instead, we want it here. And I think that's the biggest challenge for Americans. I was talking with uh, the Corderos before the service. Like that's, That is, I think, the greatest challenge for us as Americans is because we're so affluent. It is so hard for us to, to really come to grips with our hope is not in this life. Now, we, it's almost like we can imagine it, but just the, the first affliction you have, how easy it is for us to just fly off the handle in anger, in bitterness. And again, that's just, it's, it's showing that your hope is not where it should be. Your hope instead should be to want to grow in Christ-likeness and the confidence that one day you will when He returns. And so I, I don't say this to, to, to beat you up if you're struggling with this, because I struggle with this, not at all. But I, I say this to increase your joy. Brothers and sisters, every single one of us should be rejoicing in trials. And if we're not, we're, we're doing so to our own hurt. And the re, if we're not rejoicing, it's because we're choosing not to believe what the Bible tells us is true. And we're putting our hopes in vain things. And we're only going to make ourselves miserable. And if things really do get worse, as I, I assume they will, and I think they're going to get, oh, I think it's going to rapidly happen. If that is the case, we need to train ourselves to know how to endure in the face of such afflictions. And I think we can do that in just this, by learning from the small trials that we face every day. Rejoicing in trials is the prerogative of Christians. It's one of the greatest blessings that we have. And in, in verse 13 he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That's, that's again chapter 4, verse 13. So this is the context of all this rejoicing is the various trials. And again, I, I want to make this clear. Peter's not saying that, that Christians enjoy the trials. They don't enjoy the trials any more than anybody. They hate them as much. But they recognize the value of the trial. And it's because they rejoice because the, the trial again proves that they're real. Their, their hope is not fake. They're not hypocrites. And the only way they would know that is if their faith is tested by trials. 
And so they rejoice in them. But it but also says they grieve. And we, we have to see this. I think knowing this church, you guys need to see that. The, the New American Standard says distressed. It's, it's the word sorrow or grieve. Christians grieve over trials. Now, they, they, they grieve differently than unbelievers. I mean, everybody grieves trials. It's the nature of a trial. But Christians grieve for different reasons. Same reasons, but also different reasons. It's because the trials, one, expose how frail we are. And it also just, ex- trials expose just how broken this world is. How it, it's not like it should be. We, we grieve the fact that, the, that people and creation does not exalt God like it should. And it breaks our heart. This world and, and, and we ourselves are not what we should be. And so we groan longing to be Christ-like. I get that word groan from Rome, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans 8. Actually, look at these passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't have a slide for it. So worth reading. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. For we know that if our earthly tent, he's talking about our physical bodies, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about the resurrected body. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, who he who prepared us for this very thing is God, and he gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So notice that the, this groaning is, is due to a longing to, to finally receive our resurrected body. Look also at what Paul says in Romans 8. Verses 23 to 25. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But what? But hope is that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance... We wait eagerly for it. So the groaning for Christians, again, it's not just over the trials, but it's this, this longing to finally be Christ-like, this, this frustration that we're not what we want to be. And so if you have felt at all discouraged in this sermon series, one, first of all, know that you're not alone. Um, but recognize that may just be evidence that you really are born again. If you're grieving that, gosh, I'm not as holy as I want to be. Oh, I'm, I'm frustrated. I don't love people like I should, but I want to. Brothers and sisters, if you're grieving over your lack of Christ-likeness versus, ah, oh, that's just over the top. That would be evidence. Grief over our lack of spiritual progress is is a sign of the Spirit at work in our hearts. We should grieve. And if we don't grieve, 
I don't think we really understand ourselves or what we're called to. So what does a life of grieving and yet rejoicing look like practically? How is it that we are to live our lives if our hope is firmly fixed in the resurrection? So like, what does this mean? How do we know if we're doing this? Well, I think the, the best imagery that actually the Bible offers is, is that of strangers and aliens, pilgrims. To live with hope set in heaven is to live recognizing this is not our home. And to continually fix our mind on the goal. Where are we going? And I think immediately it's easy for us to think, oh, we're going to heaven. Well, that's true, we are. And, and, and we will dwell in the king, God's kingdom here on the earth. But when we think of what our goal is, our destination, I think it's actually more practically helpful to think it's, it's being Christ-like. The goal of Christians, that's what's going to happen when we get to heaven. Like that's the end of our salvation. It's to be Christ-like, to be holy even as God is holy. To be, have glorified bodies like our Lord's glorified body. The end of our pilgrimage is Christ-likeness. And so our pilgrimage is defined by a pursuit of Christ-likeness. It's not getting to heaven. If that was the pilgrimage, we could just kill ourselves. Obviously, that would be a sin, but it would also, um, it misses the point of the imagery. The pilgrimage is towards Christ-likeness, not just towards the Lord. And again, it was the apostles and much later the Puritans who emphasized this. I think the best picture, actually, is what Peter uses in chapter 2, where he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. The author of Hebrews also says, for here we don't have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. And so I thought it might be helpful just even to, to try and flesh this out using the imagery like John Bunyan did in his famous work. And again, if the goal of our pilgrimage is Christ's likeness, then that's what we need to be focusing on. And, and I think that will happen when we're resurrected from the dead and in fact when paul says for this end i press on that i might make it my own in philippians 3 he's talking about his longing for christ's likeness which will be received at the resurrection it's a great cross-reference so when we're first saved out of the city of the direction of destruction to use bunyan's words when we walk through the narrow gate i think most of us feel a strong sense of relief our burden is gone. And there's even a sense of excitement. We're children of the King. We're saved. We've been united with Christ. We're, we're part of the church. God is for us now, no longer against us. But as we progress, we begin to become more concerned with endurance, just getting through the next day than we are with speed. And our initial enthusiasm diminishes into patient plodding. And we become alert to danger and difficulty. And that's because of the, all the various trials we face, all the rigorous obstacles that we have to uh, move through on our pilgrimage towards Christ's likeness. And there's an increasing awareness of dangers because we see fellow pilgrims, many, fall away from the path. 
We see many turn back. We see some that begin to leave the city of destruction and then just camp out on the outskirts and never make any more progress towards Christ-likeness. The dangers are many to fall away. There's also an appreciation of trials. That is, we, 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 we see the value of trials. That's what Peter was talking about in verses 6 through 9. And there's many challenges on this road to Christ-likeness. We have to trudge through the swamps of discouragement, endure the cold blizzards of chronic illness or pain. Sometimes we have to sleep on the hard ground of marital strife, scale the cliffs of parenting. And not to mention all the unpleasant people like Pilgrim, the Christian met on his pilgrimage. Worldly wise men and obstinate, pliable and all the rest. We have those in our life. The trials are unpleasant, but notice also that Peter said in verse 3 that they're necessary. They're necessary to cross on the path to Christ's likeness. So we can rejoice in realizing that faithfully enduring the trials, again, indicates that we're on the right path. That's why Paul said in Acts 14.22, through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. He also said in Romans 5, verse 3, And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You see that in light of regeneration and resurrection, what he's talking about? The hope doesn't disappoint because you've been born again. The love of God has been poured into your heart. And therefore you rejoice in tribulations because it proves you're real. And that is more precious than anything this life has to offer. You're not just an imaginary Christian. Christianity isn't just a label. It's not just the cool thing for you to do. You're not just doing it because your spouse wants you to or your parents want you to. But the trials prove you are real. And therefore, you exult in tribulation. So we need to recognize that all the trials in our life, they're not threats, but, but they're necessary obstacles. The, the unpleasant co-workers, the nosy neighbors, the difficult in-laws, the, the cars that fall apart, all of the trials we face are necessary obstacles. They're put there by God. Right? Like, like the, the, the thorn in the flesh that Paul got. It was there to help Paul learn to be Christ-like. To keep him from pride. And to learn that in weakness, he is strong. So we have an appreciation of trials as we go through our pilgrimage. Also, there's an appreciation of what truly has spiritual value. I think this happens. This is actually a good mark of spiritual maturity. See, initially in our as Christians, we're attracted to what's glittery and glamoury, what's popular. Hey, we can, we can kind of live like the world and we can be cool Christians. But after a while, we realize, if, if our aim is Christ-likeness, we realize there's just a lot of stuff that's promoted at Christian bookstores, the, uh, podcasts, uh, stuff that's promoted at conferences, websites. It just, frankly, isn't all that helpful. It doesn't mean it's bad. But just even consider all the things that you've invested in. Have they helped you grow in Christ's likeness? Or are they merely palliative? 
doesn't mean they're bad, but, but we learn to really value what works. Just like a desperate traveler learns to, to value food and water and shelter. In fact, they don't really care for much else. Just give me what I need to survive. Everything else is just excess cargo, burdens. And frankly, that's what so much of this life is, guys. The reasons I think so why we Americans are so bad at rejoicing in trials is because we're so overburdened with stuff that doesn't help us on our journey. It's just excess cargo. It's burning us down and, and it's it's just so painful to let go of the waterbed we want to bring with us on our pilgrimage. But at some point we just gotta realize it's not helpful. And I think we do. We recognize the inestimable value of of what really does help. Particularly the word, corporate fellowship, prayer, and trials. And as we grow, as we continue, really survival on this journey becomes more important than style. I think early on in our pilgrimage, it's like, how, what are people going to think of me? What biography, who's going to write my biography? Who, what, how are my kids going to remember me? How are my grandkids going to remember me? How am I going to leave my mark? Are they, going to, are they going to establish a building after my name because of how much I've given for what? Something. Early on in our pilgrimage, what we're concerned with is our legacy. That's just style. But as we mature, we're just far more concerned about, God, I just want to get home. I want to be faithful. Mature Christians learn to care more about what really helps and what simply looks good or is popular. And moreover, so many of the commitments to work, fashion, and society, they're just recognized as not worth the cost. The cost in time, the cost in money, the cost in relationships. If we're trying to be Christ-like, there is so much that just has to get cut out of our life. Because it doesn't help. It's not there for that purpose. Doesn't mean it's evil, but we're not going to make much progress with too much of it. And I think also there's a growing sense of responsibility for others. The further we progress in our pilgrimage, we just we begin to be burdened with other fellow pilgrims. We're not just worried about our own survival, but we begin to be uh, overwhelmingly concerned for uh, particularly new believers or the naive that have this really sense of thinking, this is just going to be a great vacation. And there's a desire to want to teach and instruct and to come alongside. There's this great quote uh, from the second century. It's a letter called called The Letter to Diognetus. And he describes uh, the life of a Christian in worldly surroundings. He says, they manifest the marvelous and admittedly strange deportment of their own citizenship. They live in their own homelands, but as strangers. Their lot is cast in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They spend their time upon the earth, but they have their citizenship in heaven. They love everyone and are persecuted by everyone. They are put to death and they are gaining life. They are dishonored and they are glorified in their dishonor. And just contrast that picture between how many people we know who got saved and it looks like they they went to the outfitters 
right, right out of the city of destruction. They went to REI and got all the greatest equipment. And then they go like 100 yards and then camp out just 100 yards into their journey. And then they say, well, I'm just going to wait till Christ returns. They're dressed like pilgrims, but they're going nowhere. So how can we, how can we grow to have a pilgrim mindset? where we really aren't just coasting as Christians like jellyfish on an ocean, but we are, we are going against the stream. We are, we are throwing off every encumbrance, anything that lay, that, that, any stumbling block, anything that holds us back, and we're pressing on towards the goal of Christlikeness. How can we do that? How can we fix our hope in heaven? Well, Peter tells us, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, notice that the main verb is set your hope. And then the phrases pray your minds and keep sober. They're just explaining how that's done. The way you set your hope is by a disciplined mind. And that's that's so important for us to recognize. How you think will lead to whether you rejoice in your trial or not. And so if you're not rejoicing in trials, the first place to go is, where's your thoughts? What are you meditating on? What are you longing for? What are you hoping? So he says, prepare your minds. Literally, it's binding up the loins of your mind. And this was a figure speech in the Middle East, which basically means tuck up your robes uh, and, and belt it on so your legs are free for running. So soldiers, before they get into battle, would gird up the loins by tightening their belt so they wouldn't stumble on their robes. In fact, the phrase is used in uh, Exodus twelve eleven when the Israelites are instructed to eat the Passover. He says, eat it with your belt fastened, as gird up your loins, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. The people were called to eat the Passover in haste, girding up their loins, because they were supposed to leave in a hurry, so as they, their progress would not be impeded as they ventured to the promised land. And that's very purposeful. The symbolism is very purposeful there. Get ready, because when you're released, go. Don't let anything hold you back. Don't be like Lot's wife. In fact, Jesus made the same warning, didn't he? When people asked about his second return. Remember Lot's wife. And so their, their preparedness demonstrated how much they truly believe they will be going soon. And that where they're going is better than Egypt. And this is how one commentator explained the phrase, girding up the loins of the mind. Instead of letting their thoughts, purposes, and decisions hang loose while they move casually along, as impulse and occasion may move them, the readers are to gird up their minds like people who are energetically set on going somewhere. That is, they're, they're, they're supposed to think like those who are going to Christ-likeness. And Jesus used this phrase in the parable of the servants. And I want you to see the eschatological focus. Luke twelve thirty five, He says, stay dressed for action. That is, gird up the loins. 
and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once. And when he comes and knocks, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Again, the point being, we need to think and we need to live as those whose greatest longing is to see Christ and to receive our resurrected bodies. The second description about how we're to think is that we're to be sober-minded. This is easy. It just means don't think like a drunk. Don't be foggy in your thinking. Don't be impulsive, uh, but be decisive, clear. Don't be tossed around by emotion, anxiety, and other fears. We need to, we need to be sober and thoughtful, uh, disciplined with where we set our mind, to know where we're going. In all the various activities we involve in, they should at some point be focused on this end. If not, why are you doing it? It's only a distraction if it doesn't help towards that end. And in it being a distraction, it's only going to be a weight and it's going to be encumbrance and you're going to really struggle to rejoice in trials, especially as the heat gets turned up. So we're not to be foggy. We're, I think this, this means we need to preserve a pilgrim mindset in our thought, thought life. So, as it stands, all of us, we're, we're half-baked Christians. We're saved, but our salvation isn't complete. And until that day, it's just, it's a, it's a fight it's work, it's labor. Those are all biblical words that are used to describe the Christian life. It's not easy. And if your life is not easy, don't be discouraged, but rather rejoice. But make sure it's not easy, not because of the foolish things you're choosing to do, but it's not easy because your, your faith is getting tested and you're proven to be real. We should always rejoice. And I think if we're not rejoicing, it's just because we're tied too much to vain things in this world. And so we live with the mindset of pilgrims, not striving after the the vain things in life, but Christ-likeness in ourselves and in others. That's what we're called to. As you know, this year marks the 400th anniversary of the sailing of the Mayflower, which of course is... Why we celebrate Thanksgiving. In fact, the first Thanksgiving will be 400 years from next year. And many people are aware that uh, the passengers on the Mayflower were coming to America because they were looking for religious freedom. And that's true. But there were other convictions in what motivated them. Convictions that led them to leave family and friends and even to risk the unknown in across the sea. And this is seen in Governor William Bradford's description of the church's departure from Holland. He says, So they left that goodly and pleasant city, which had been their resting place nearly 12 years. But they knew they were pilgrims. And looked not much on those things, but lifted up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, 
and quieted their spirits. They knew they were pilgrims. That's why they left. And it's actually on the basis of that writing that those passengers became known as the pilgrims. They were just separatists, Puritans. But they were called pilgrims because of that description by William Bradford. The pilgrims embraced the losses and risks because they knew they were pilgrims. They knew where they were going. And they rejoiced even in the necessary losses. The question is, do you know that you're a pilgrim? Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to forget. And frankly, it's, it's also hard. Hard to accept because there's so much here that we love. So much here that we want. So much here that we're attached to. Either because of our previous life of sin or just, just the nature of life. Good things. God, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to leave the things I love. And yet, I don't want anything to hold me back from my pursuit of You. And I don't want anything to hold any of us back. And Father, I feel a special burden as a, as a pastor of this church. I don't know how to... I, I pray for grace and wisdom how to help stir my brothers and sisters up for this end. Help us to know how we can care for one another to endure how to keep our minds set, how to, how to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Lord, help us to be willing to lose so that we might gain. God, I don't want a church that's established and well-known as much as I want a church of pilgrims who are ready to let everything go for the sake of you. And I pray that you would do that miracle in us. You've already done the miracle of regeneration. Now make us to be a church that's truly worthy of the name. That shows we live not for the things of this world, but our greatest longing is to be with you and to stand and behold your glory when we're conformed finally to your image. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.